I'm Marty Moscow, and welcome to The Connection. A growing number of American adults are single, a phenomenon that's happening with adults in other countries all over the world. Now, some are waiting for the right person to come along, some are divorced, some are widowed, and some are perfectly happy with their single status. I'm talking about almost half the adult population, and yet there are still enduring negative stereotypes about single people. They're immature, insecure, self-centered, picky, and unhappy. We're going to dispel some of those attitudes today on The Connection and talk about why partnering isn't for everyone how the economic system benefits marriage over singlehood, what it takes to embrace a single identity and life, and how singles are inventing new kinds of relationships. And we've got two guests who are proponents who have found fulfilling, rich, and purposeful lives without being coupled. Chris Marsh is a professor and director of graduate studies in sociology at the University of Maryland. She's the author of a book called The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. Chris Marsh, nice to have you with us on The Connection today. Thank you, Marty. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's nice to have you with us. And I should say that uh, Peter McGraw, psychologist, will be joining us in just a couple of minutes. Chris, let me begin with you. Um, Let's talk about stigma and stereotyping. Since we're talking about almost half the adult population in America, and I'm assuming in a lot of other countries around the world, why this enduring uh, negative stereotyping? That's a really great question, Marty. When we think about singles, we often think that singles want to be married, they need to be married, and they're supposed to be married. So it's funny because we're just coming through the holidays and single people always have to get their narratives together when they go around their family and friends about, why are you single? Are you dating anyone? Anything new you want to tell us? Society pushes us towards being partnered and being married. And when you're single, you tend to disrupt that conversation. But I think it's important for us to understand that singlehood is on the rise and we, we, we really need to destigmatize singlehood. And the reason being is because if we don't destigmatize singlehood, people could find themselves in relationships that are abusive, toxic, unfulfilling, and even oppressive because they don't want to hold the title of single. This is a question I almost hesitate to ask you, Chris. Uh, why aren't you married? And I know that that's really a, a, a kind of a, a red flag for people who are single and happily single. What's the answer to that? Right, right, Marty. So I want to answer that question in two ways, if you don't mind. Um, in the book, The Love Jones Cohort, at the end of the book, I tell the reader, after reading this book, I hope you understand that we should ask everybody about their status. We only ask married people We only ask single people, why are you single? But we don't ask married people, why are you married? Either we should ask everybody or we should ask nobody, but we keep asking single people. And the reason why that's problematic is because it suggests that something's wrong or there's a deficit in the person that's single, but the married person is happy, healthy, and whole. So that's the first answer I want to give. But the second... The second answer is that I love my singleness. I absolutely love my singleness. I think marriage is a beautiful thing. I'm pro-marriage, pro-partner, but it just hasn't quite happened for me. And I often say, I don't want anybody coming in here disrupting my peace. I'm in a very peaceful place. I stand confidently in my singleness. And so until I can find something that makes sense, I am going to celebrate my singleness. Are there unique, I guess, either stereotypes or even stigmas for African-Americans when it comes to singlehood? 
That's a great question. And I identify as a black or African-American. And it was really important for me to write the book because when we think about the conversations that are being had, like in the larger context, there's a lot of conversations around why aren't professional black women getting married? And the reason why that's a problem for me is because that suggests that that's all they are. If they don't have an MRS degree, then that's all that matters. So I really wanted to talk to people who were single and living alone, especially black women, to find out how they were living their single lives. What were they doing? I wanted to push beyond the conversation of, of why aren't you getting married, but what are you doing as a single person? And it's really important that we do that because if not, again, it just looks like the single person is waiting to be married and there's something wrong with them. And that's not the case. Well, and, and what I read from your book, and we'll get Peter in on the conversation in a moment or two, is that many of these, if we're talking about black women, are trailblazers when it comes to relationships and, and embracing singlehood. Yes. Yeah, so black women have been doing singlehood for quite some time. And it's really important that we give our flowers and pay homage and respect to black women because they have shown other people in the U.S. in the U.S. and I would also argue globally how to do singlehood and how to do it in an efficient and effective way. We will get back to that. Let me get uh, our other guest in on the conversation. Peter McGraw is a marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's also the author of a new book titled Solo, Building a Remarkable Life of Your Own. And Peter McGraw, nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Yes, wonderful to be here, and it's good to hear Chris Marsh's voice. I am such a big fan of her work. Well, so I heard thank you for having me. And I heard her on on your podcast. I was talking with Chris about these enduring stereotypes about single people, and I'm just curious, from your perspective, what are they, and why do they endure? Yeah, where do we begin? Um, <laughs> so I think uh, one of the biggest, uh, I think, stereotypes is that uh, single people are selfish. Mm. Right? They are, um, you know, they're Peter Pans, you know, they're not, they're not willing to do the hard work of growing up, partnering up and settling down. And uh, first of all, the data don't support that. Um, and certainly the experience that I've had uh, with, uh, with the remarkable singles in, in the community is that, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth, actually, that singles contribute to the world in uh, in so many ways. Uh, they disproportionately care give their elderly parent. Uh, they are more involved in their communities. They donate more of their time, more of their money uh, than their partnered peers. Uh, they have uh, broader friendships. Um, and and in many ways, I think uh, just sort of mathematically, uh, given how much a escalator relationship is supposed to demand of you, they often have time and energy to dedicate to other things, as I had mentioned, um, you know, to their communities, to donating and so on. But, um, you know, being kind of invested in their careers, contributing to science, contributing to the arts and so on. And so this is not a situation where people who are dedicated to their singleness, proud of their singleness, is an attempt to not grow up. And actually, in many ways, good singles are good parents to themselves. They are adults. But rather, they just have 
other things that they want to be doing. And I do want to uh, pick to, up. Yeah, I do want to pick up on that. L- let me also ask you, Peter, about when you look at dis- divorce statistics, statistics and, and you see that about a third of marriages end in divorce, whether that has caused people to kind of shy away from marriage and to look for other ways to be in the world. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the rise of singles, we're seeing this uh, globally. I mean, the United States, it's uh, it's so um, striking, right? 28% of households are one person. Half of American adults, that's 127 million, are single. And half of them are not interested in dating or a relationship at the moment. And, the you know, the reasons uh, for this are, are numerous. Sure. One is the threat of divorce, right? The idea that this might not be forever and to see that it's a wealth destroyer, to see the emotional toll that divorce takes because divorce is so stigmatized uh, is certainly one of those reasons. Um, but I think with regard to Chris, Chris's work that I think is really um, so important to highlight is that part of the reason has been because of the rise of women more generally. You know, we lived at a time uh, where nearly everybody got married. You know, in 1960, 90% of adults would go on to get married. And uh, the problem, of course, was that if you were a woman, you in, in many ways moved from your father's house into your husband's house. And you didn't have the same rights as uh, as men did. Right? It wasn't until very recently that women could have checking accounts in their name, have credit cards in their name. It wasn't until the early 70s that these head and master laws were were taken off of the books. And so because of the rise of women, access to education, access to economic opportunities, a non-trivial number of women just decide, mm-hmm. I don't need a man to survive. And so now marriage is optional in a way that it wasn't uh, not that long ago. Well, let me get a woman back in on the conversation. And, and Chris, let me turn to you because you talk, your book is about middle-class um, African-Americans in, in this country, obviously. But you talk about the kind of freedom and flexibility that a lot of the people in your cohort, the people that you interviewed, talked about when it came to being single. Flesh that out for us. Yes, yeah, singlehood and freedom were almost synonymous in the book. A lot of the respondents talked about how they embraced their freedom to do what they wanted to do, to live where they wanted to live, to vacation where they wanted to vacation, to spend their money the way in which they wanted to spend their money and didn't have to ask anybody else. So there was a certain level of liberation that came with being single among the respondents that I spoke with for the book. And what about men versus women? When you talked to them, was it different, Chris? No, pretty consistent across the board. Freedom was something that was really important to them and not having to be responsible for anyone else, but just themselves. That was consistent across the board for both men and women in the cohort. Are we talking economic freedom or psychological freedom, freedom in all its iterations? E, all of the above. All of the above. (laughs) Yes, it was freedom on multiple different levels. Yes, it was economic, but then also psychologically, they had the freedom to only take care of themselves, only be responsible for themselves. Um, sociologically, whatever they wanted to do in the larger, broader society, they couldn't, didn't have to worry about anybody else. So it was freedom across the spectrum. Makes sense to you, Peter? Yeah, no doubt. I think that um, the thing that's tough about talking about singlehood and about this rise of singlehood is that it is 
it's complicated, right? It's, Indeed. It, you know, it's there's so many reasons that this is happening. There are some generalities, though, right? So some people just live their best lives as a single person. Uh, doesn't mean that they're lonely. Doesn't mean that they're detached from the world. Doesn't mean they don't have important, meaningful connections. It's just this one particular style of relationship and its very strict rules doesn't work for them. And and it may be not working for them at this particular time because they're building a business, they're getting uh, educated, they're moving to a new city, or it may be that it no longer works for them. They're they're divorced, they're widowed, they've been there, they've done that. Um, that their best lives is a different permutation of relationship. Uh, and so whenever you know that someone is single, uh, it actually in many ways tells you very little about hmm. them. Well, you indeed. Know, it, and let's take yeah. let's take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. And yes, we are talking about being single. And that's uh, Peter McGraw. He's a marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Wrote a book called Solo, Building a Remarkable Life of Your Own. Chris Marsh, a professor and director of graduate studies in sociology at the University of Maryland, author of The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss Cohen, and today on the show we are talking about being single. And I saw a really interesting study. I think it was from Bowling Green State University that found in 2020 almost a third of adults ages either 30 to 49, so people in their 30s and 40s, had never been married. And again, our guests are sociologist Chris Marsh and psychologist Peter McGraw. Peter, I do want to pick up on the loneliness question because, um, as, as we've heard from uh, the, the Surgeon General, that there is an epidemic of loneliness in this country. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But nonetheless, do you think people who are living by themselves, living solo, are at greater risk for loneliness? They are, yes. Although there's something important to understand about loneliness, and that is, um, it is obviously it's incredibly debilitating emotionally, physically, psychologically, and it is something um, that concerns me deeply. Uh, the, the key element about loneliness is is surprisingly not about spending time alone per se, right. but it's about wanting to not be alone and being unable to do it. So it's about lacking choice. And so the the people who are suffering from loneliness, some of which are in relationships, uh, are finding that their relationships are not meeting their needs. Which is, and so, yeah, no, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, and so that opens up a different set of solutions than the typical, we'll get married and don't be lonely, right? Because a uh, a marriage that is not fulfilling can be a lonely marriage. So uh, what ends up happening with single people is, no, they don't have that ready-made companion in their bed. They need to do more work, make more effort to be socially connected, to reach out to family, to reach out to friends, to, to develop intimate connections in order to um, to avoid this this awful feeling of like, I have no one to call in the middle of the night when I am sick or afraid. Chris, you, you talk about or you write about something called that you describe as situational loneliness. And this came from the, a number of the people that you interviewed for your book. What is what is situational loneliness? 
Yes, so the respondents talked about being situationally lonely. And what they mean by that is that they tend to be lonely during um, certain times of the year, for example. Maybe around like New Year's Eve when you're supposed to be able to kiss somebody. Or we have Valentine's Day coming up on February 14th. And, you know, you're going to go to the grocery store and see all this sea of pink and red and so on and so forth. And the people that were single, they kind of felt like maybe they wanted somebody to kiss or they wanted to get flowers or chocolates on Valentine's Day. But it was like only around holidays or something like that. It was short. It wasn't debilitating. It was a day or so. And what was really key is that a lot of their friends helped them through this situational loneliness that lasted about a day or so. So friends play a central role in the lifestyles of those that are single and living alone. Well, let me pick up on that because that's that's something that I, I glean from both of your books about the the idea of, I guess, turning friends into family. Chris, can you speak to that? Yes. So in the book, I talk about how we should be defined as a family of one. We can come back to that. But I also talked about how we should we develop these augmented families. And these are people that we have non-romantic nurturing relationships with. And you can think of them as friends who are closer to us sometimes than our own family. So we build a network of people around us that are our chosen family, our selected family, or an and or our augmented family. And I am of the mindset that these kind of institutions need to be recognized in a legal kind of way because they really do mean something to those that are single. And it's consistently, the respondents in the book talked about how their friends play a central role in their singlehood and cons- they consider them a part of their family. Is that true for you, Peter? Indeed. I, I'm not the person that I am today without um, deep, broad friendships. Uh, in many ways, they these are relationships that um, that do fulfill this social need that that many people have to be connected. These are people who support me emotionally. They are people who provide companionship. Um, and so if you're not going to default into the typical script, which is find your person, uh, then you you need to find a different script. And I, I agree that, that friends are, um, are a wonderful way to go about doing that. Um, well, I have to say something. Yeah, oh, no, go please. ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I keep stepping on that, you, but go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. No, it's fine. One thing that I have to say is that, uh, you know, for people who are listening right now, it is important to just question, why do we have this default? Right. Like, why is marriage so prominent? You know, why is it something that is considered to be the right thing to do, even the righteous thing to do? And and for some people, it's considered the only path that they should do and o- the only one that they've ever considered. And I think I, sort of pulling back the curtain and and starting to understand why marriage was invented in the first place. Uh, can actually in many ways be liberating for people who feel like, oh, that's not quite the right fit for mm. me for now or forever. Well, we could do a whole hour on marriage, on, on marriage which I, it's <laughs> tempting, but I don't want to do. But it is interesting, Peter, picking up on your point there, that we've gone from largely arranged marriages to love marriages. And I guess the question is, you know, can can love last for 70 years? For some people, absolutely it does. Yeah, I mean, the ch- the challenge, of course, so obviously moving from arranged marriages where your family chooses your life partner uh, to a love marriage where you get to choose them is 
you know, is obviously an important advancement, again, especially for women uh, who, you know, when you had an arranged marriage, you just hoped that your husband would be kind to you. Mm. Uh, the problem with love marriages, of course, is that when the love's not there anymore, what's the use of the marriage? And um, and even further, we now have what's called growth marriages, this belief that your person should be everything to you. You should share the same lifestyle, the same beliefs. You They should make you a better person personally and professionally. And that's such a tall order that it can end up making what is otherwise a healthy, happy relationship feel underwhelming or feel disappointing. And, um, and you know, that's that's a difficult place to be. Indeed, a difficult and very lonely place to be. Let me pick up on something. And I should say I am married. I do have friends. <laughs> and to you, Chris, um, when you look at I mean, I have very deep, profound friendships with with a, a number of people in my life. Do you see single people and their friendships as something different from a married person's friendship? No, I don't see it as different from a married person's relationship. I think it needs to be as valued Mm. as a married relationship, but it's not. And that's the unfortunate part. Because to the point that Peter was kind of making, it's, it's a really easy question, but I think it's a very complicated answer. Why do you want to be married? I think we need to ask that question. And then the other thing that we need to think about is if you are married, do not put all of your eggs in that emotional basket. Make sure that you still do cultivate relationships outside of that marriage because that marriage or that partnership is actually not not guaranteed. And sometimes you can find yourself returning to singlehood and you have forsaken all of your friends. And so you don't know how to navigate being single because you return to singlehood because of widowed separation or divorce and you don't have an idea how to exist because you didn't continue to build network with friends outside of your marriage. I mean, Peter, do we have to trash marriage in order to elevate singlehood? Not at all. No. Um, actually, I, what I want to do is, is put marriage and singlehood at the same level. I'm not interested in, um, in, in, in deriding marriage in any way. That's something that is, you know, incredibly fulfilling it's important for society. And, but what I don't want are singles walking around feeling less than until they find their, the one, the person, and so on. And so what I want to do is change the narrative so that these things are, they're just different states of the world. And um, choosing one or the other is considered to be uh, equally viable, um, equally fulfilling, um, albeit quite quite different. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. And that's uh, Peter McGraw. He's a marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He's also the author of a new, a new book. It's titled Solo, Building a Remarkable Life of Your Own. Chris Marsh is with us as well. She's a professor and director of graduate studies in sociology at the University of Maryland. And her book is titled The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black middle class. Peter, one thing you you wrote in your book is singlehood is not as bad and marriage is not as good as you have been led to believe, kind of underscoring what you were saying earlier. Indeed. You know, the the thing that is important to to understand is there is this narrative of get married and find bliss. And uh, the marriage advocates of the world will point to data that shows that married people are happier than single people. 
And there, there's some problems with, with that research. The first thing is the difference between the two groups is so small right. that it is not even a meaningful difference. Like we can find it because we've surveyed hundreds of thousands of single and married people. Uh, so knowing whether someone's single or married tells you very little about how happy they are with their life. The other problem with this is that this is correlational work. That is, you can't run a study which tests causality. I can't randomly assign people to getting married or staying single and seeing how that turns out. It actually ends up being the case, and this is super fascinating, is that longitudinal research that asks people their happiness at various points of time, some of those people end up getting married. Uh, in that time, you can look at the change. And there's actually very little change in people's happiness beyond the honeymoon. That is that people have a small bump in their happiness as their wedding day approaches, but they go back down to their original level of happiness. And so this narrative that getting married makes you happy, the data don't end up supporting it. Um, marriage makes some people happy, it makes other people less happy. And on balance, people end up being about uh, as happy as they were before, even though they're living a very different life um, that, uh, that again, may be very important to them. We, it's funny you say that because I, I, I kept running across that married people are healthier and happier. They have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I Googled it you know, and I got to the APA <laughs> and a recent study underscoring exactly what you said there, Peter, that uh, an increase in happiness is very small, approximately one tenth of one point in an 11 point scale and is likely due to initial reactions to marriage and then a return to prior levels of happiness. Chris, you want to weigh in on this happiness and, and single singlehood issue? Right. And that's a really great uh, question in the conversation that we're having around happiness. And we talk in the book, I talk to people that are single and I ask them about their, their happiness. And some of the people do want to be married, but some of the people um, that aren't married or aren't looking forward to be married are happy. They're content with where they are. And I think it's really important that we're very confident and happy in who we are individually before we get into a marriage or a partnership. I am not anti-marriage by any stretch of the imagination, right. but it's baffling to me where people think like marriage is a panacea. If I can just get married, all of my my issues will go away. It'll just solve everything. It's like we got to find our happiness individually first before we even think about getting into some type of relationship. And when we even talk about relationship, it's always interesting when people say, I want to be in a relationship. And after having written this book and talked to people that are single, I'm like, you have to explain what type of relationship you mean, because we are often in non-romantic nurturing relationships with other friends and we underestimate those relationships, but we sometimes tend to overestimate those the romantic marriage relationships. So it's important for people to understand you don't want to forsake those, those non-romantic nurturing relationships that you have because those can be very valuable and can bring a lot of happiness to you as well, but it doesn't always have to be in this marriage type of relationship. And we don't talk enough about the non-marriage type of relationships. Well, let's do that. And Peter, let me go back to you. You talk about four different kinds of singles, the, the someday singles, which is, you know, someday I will find that person who will be my partner. There's the just may singles, which is 
I may find someone, um, but it's a little more amorphous who I am looking for. There's the no ways single. These are people that say, I just have no interest in another kind of relationship. And then, as you say, a really fast-growing group are the new way singles, which is sort of recreating or, 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 or reinventing uh, relationships. Let's talk about the new way singles. Who are they? What are they sure. doing? Yeah, well, they're doing everything. <laughs> they're doing everything. <laughs> I got that feeling. The... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're doing everything, but the the traditional, um, as we call it, relationship escalator, this um, acceptable type of romance in the world. They're bending and breaking the rules of the escalator. So um, they may be pursuing casual relationships. Maybe they're they have a, a very um, fulfilling friends with benefits. Um, maybe they're part of the lifestyle community. They're um, ethically non-monogamous or they're polyamorous. Uh, maybe their their most important relationship in life is one there is no romance or sex. They have a platonic partnership. So mm-hmm. this is a um, deep connection with someone. They consider this person their life partner, but that person doesn't fulfill romantic or sexual needs if they have it. But they function almost in the same way as a spouse does in every other way. And so I think that this is kind of a very exciting time uh, because people can then kind of customize, create a bespoke relationship Hmm. that works best with their lifestyle, works best with their goals, works best with their romantic needs or sexual needs uh, and so on. And we're starting to see more acceptance and more conversation. And I think this is very important for the following reason. Some people are single because they just can't, they keep trying to date people who want a traditional relationship and they don't want all of that. They don't want to live with their partner, for example. They want a living apart together relationship. And so they think there's something wrong with them because they can't make relationships work. The problem is that it's not that there's something wrong with them per se, but there's something wrong with this traditional relationship, and they have to go out and find people who are like-minded. Let me get you back in, Chris. And and uh, yes. it, it's interesting to think about that in light of the fact that there is just people's growing understanding of their own sexual identity, their own sexual orientation, their gender identity. Do you see this as part of this sort of flux of, of identity and relationship that seems to be happening pretty much across the culture? Right. So this is where I think we gets back to a point that Peter was making earlier about singlehood and singlehood being very complex and very nuanced. And I also appreciate the elevator analogy. But when we think about singlehood, it's kind of hard to not have the conversation about how race or racial identity fits into the conversation. So one of the things that I argue in the book, and I think is really important and we shouldn't lose focus of, is that you have a lot of Black people that are single. But we have to also under contextualize that in a larger context. And one of the things I often say is that when we think about Black singlehood, we have to understand how structural forces constrain personal choices, especially for Black women. If I were to say that differently, we have to think about how racism constrains personal choices. If I were to give you an example so you could understand what I'm actually saying, if I, Chris Marsh, want to marry another heterosexual black man who has a PhD, owns his own home, makes $250,000 a year and has estate planning, he's simply not there. Hmm. So regardless of where I might be on the elevator or regardless of where I'm, if I'm single by choice 
or by force, there is a larger context that sometimes gets kind of lost in the conversation about singlehood. And I try to bring that larger context to the to the con- to the larger context. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. And you call it the marriage squeeze. And we're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. That's Chris Marsh. She's a sociologist. And we are talking about uh, being single, uh, being happily single. Peter McGraw is with us and he's a psychologist. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. And in case you're just joining us, we're talking about the fact that a growing number of Americans are living without a spouse or partner. It's on the rise. We're talking about the benefits and challenges of being single in a world that seems built for couples. And again, our guests are Chris Marsh. She's a professor, director of graduate studies in sociology at the University of Maryland, wrote a book called The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. Peter McGraw, marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And he's the author of Solo, Building a Remarkable life of your own. Chris, I want to go back to you just to make sure our listeners understand you were talking about how difficult it is for black professional women with a home and a really good salary to find a a black man who is similarly um, situated. Is that because we tend to partner up or even get married to people that are kind of like us? Yes. So I don't want to use a whole bunch of sociological terms, (laughs) but if we think about this idea, right, of educational homogamy, we typically are going to marry or partner with someone that has the same education level of us as us or come from the same class status. I'm not putting a value judgment on it, whether or not that's that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's generally what the data kind of suggests. So if I want to marry someone that has a, a black man that has a PhD, he simply may not be there. But what is important to understand is that whether or not it's an adaptation or whether or not it's by choice, black women and black singles have figured out how to do singlehood and they're doing it in very positive kind of ways. And so we need to talk more about singlehood and what are some of the positives that can come out of singlehood. And one of the things that is really important to me is if we know that there's a rise in singlehood and we have great books that Peter wrote and Bella DePaulo just wrote a book, Single at Heart, that just came out. We really need to step back for a second and think about the way in which we define family. And if we use the Census Bureau definition of a family, a family is someone that you're related to by blood, marriage, or adoption. If you buy my argument that I said before the commercial break that structural forces constrain personal choices, especially for Black singles, if you then don't allow Black singles who are in a family of one to be considered a family of one, you could be discriminated in plain sight. So I, Chris Marsh, because I'm single and living alone, I don't show up in the census data as a family. I show up in the census data as a household. And so there are true benefits. So sometimes can be benefits on the policy level for a family. And I really think that people that are single should either be defined as a family and or and or get the same benefits that a family gets. To complicate my 
to complicate my my statement, I also think if you don't buy my argument about a family of one, getting back to the idea about how friends play a central role in the lifestyle of singles, again, I think it's really important that we develop and institutionalize those augmented families or those chosen families for policy purposes. And when by by policy, we're talking about tax purposes and and benefits and what you do with your social security, for instance. Absolutely. Those are the kind of things like if I, Chris Marsh, am not defined as a family, there's there's certain tax benefits that are built into the tax structure for families. And there's a single hook penalty that can be built into the tax structure. So there's a great book by Dorothy Brown. She writes, her book is called The Whiteness of Wealth. And one of the things she argues is that we should all file taxes as a single person. And I'm arguing if we can't all file taxes as a single person, I want to file taxes as the Chris Marsh family and get my family discount (laughs) on the tax structure. (laughs) Well, I hope that happens for you, Chris Marsh. Let me go back to you, Peter McGraw. You look at a number of other countries besides the United States where, you know, this is happening around the world, but they seem to do a better job of of accepting and incorporating uh, single people into the into the sort of national structure. Indeed. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So I, I made the trip to uh, Stockholm for the Midsummer Festival to go to what I believe is the singles capital of the world, uh, Sweden. Uh, so Scandinavian countries have uh, very high rates of single living. They also have very high rates of people living alone, over 40% of the population in wow. uh, in um, Stockholm, Finland, Norway, uh, Denmark, et cetera, live alone. And in many ways, uh, Stockholm and, and its uh, Scandinavian peers are an amazing case study because they actually myth to me. They actually um, bust one of the myths that I wanted to talk about, which is that the decline in marriage rates and the rise of singles is is suggestive that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. That things are that this is the decline of of society. But the problem with that is that these Scandinavian countries are among the happiest places to live. They're among the best places to live in the world, which creates a paradox, right? Why is it that the best places in the world are um, having the highest rates of single living? And the reason for that is that these are countries that support the individual rather than the family structure. That is that they have um, they often have uh, free education. They have generous um uh, unemployment benefits, they have health care that is at the individual level. And what this allows people to do is to choose whether to marry or not. That is that they don't have to marry to survive. And so these end up being like very wonderful places to live because you can be entrepreneurial, you can take chances, you um, you don't have to be very risk-seeking in a sense. And so they are um, they're a place where singles can thrive. The other place that I think is really fascinating, and this is a little bit counterintuitive because you might think, oh, well, these Scandinavian countries are individualistic and that's why you're finding all these singles. And, and the welfare also... state, for instance, that. Indeed, mm-hmm. yes. And the welfare state is is critical. And this is to, to Chris's point about having a family of one. That's Scandinavia treats people as a family of one um, rather than having to get these benefits by marrying. But excuse me, collectivistic countries are showing this too. I would say that the, sing, the, the singles capital of Asia is South Korea. Um, this is a very traditional com- uh, country. It's a collectivistic country, the seventh most collectivistic country in the world. Um, but you're seeing 
um, young people break off um, and opt out of this very traditional strict view of success. And many of them are going are going solo. What's been fascinating in Asia is the support isn't coming from the government as much, but it's actually coming from businesses. That is that businesses are recognizing that this segment of the population has different needs and is starting to um, provide for those needs. Um, Trips for singles, um, solo dining, um, home solutions uh, that are built for smaller spaces and so on. And so in that way, these singles are feeling uh, supported, not through government, but through commerce. Let me raise something. And Chris, I'll go back to you. And we've been talking about being single from, you know, kind of a professional middle class, upper middle class perspective. But I'm thinking about the numbers of single moms, largely, but single parents raising children. And, you know, we've been talking about choice and freedom and flexibility um, and and not feeling isolated. And I think for those people, being single is is none of these things that we have been talking about. Yeah, so I think that single parents is a whole different kind of conversation. And I think to answer this question, I want to um, dovetail with some of the research in the book. And one of the things that singles talked about, they talked about how they support their extended family and they support people outside of their extended family. So even though singles may not have children, they may have some financial responsibility to certain children, which I think gets back to the conversation about like taxes and how there should be some tax write off when singles have to, when singles are thought of as being the checkbook and their time is thought of as being um, exposed, exposed to the the entire extended family, especially in Black America, and especially in some of the research, Black women in particular, their checkbook and their time, because they are single, is thought of as being the extended family's time. So they're okay with asking to borrow money from the single person because it's just the single person. They're okay with asking the single person to take the grandmother to the podiatrist because they're just a single person. And so single people still have certain levels of responsibility or could have certain levels of responsibility to the extended family, and we don't talk enough about that. I do believe that single mothers, in particular single parents, might have a certain level of responsibility to their immediate children. But I think when we think about responsibility, it's not just at the parent level. It really is about single people and their extended family, what responsibility they have to the extended family. Peter, let me pick up on something you were talking about earlier, that uh, people that are singles uh, might be dating, but oftentimes find the people that they're dating want to move in or they want to get married. And and you talk a little bit about yourself. It sounds like those are some of the experiences that you've had as a single person that's out in the world and, and, you know, essentially seeing what's out there. Yeah, I would say um, I've kind of gone through this evolution myself. Uh, Early as a young man, I would say I was single by chance. You know, I was someone who (laughs) craved romance. I wanted to fall in love. Uh, I just wasn't very good at relationships. I hadn't really become an appealing partner uh, out there. And then I moved into this, uh, uh, I would say, kind of single by mismatch idea, right? That I was I was dating women who wanted the whole shebang. And while I had healthy, happy relationships with them, when it came to the moment where uh, my girlfriend wanted to move in, I had to say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And we experienced the heartbreak because the rules were the relationship must end, right? Because it's supposed to be on this escalator path going up. 
Uh, now my singleness, I think, is more of the choice variety. Um, I like to say I'm 20% no way, 80% new way. And so, um, you know, I have dating, I date in my life and um, I have very wonderful romantic relationships at times, but they just happen to look a lot different than what the, you know, what the standards uh, that we see on television in the films and the rom-coms and the love songs end up looking like. Um, and as a result, I, you know, I'm happier than I've ever been with regard to my uh, my dating life. You quote someone. I, yeah, hold on just one quick uh, second, Chris, and then I'll get back to you. Uh, you quote someone, a guy named Josh, who quote, I date my friends and I sleep with strangers. <laughs> yes, uh, DTLA Josh. Uh, he, you know, I met him at a coffee shop through a mutual friend, and he, he just said this offhandedly, and it blew my mind. You know, he was he was so comfortable with the fact that he has created this alternative relationship structure. He's obviously a new way uh, single, right? but it's, it's impossible to look at, at Josh's life and think that it's less than in any way. He hosts his supper club. He has this big, diverse group of people. He hosts them all the time, deep, intimate connections. And then when he wants sex, he just fires up an app and finds someone who just wants sex. And they have a mutually... Uh, beneficial, consensual uh, relationship, which may blow people's mind, but it works for him. But it works for him, which is, of course, the important thing. Chris, go ahead. I'm sorry I jumped on you there. Go ahead. Oh, no problem. I do. And I appreciate Peter talking about his personal experience. And I do know that relationships, especially romantic relationships, are getting ready to be highlighted or spotlighted because Valentine's Day is coming. And so I just want to offer the audience a piece of advice or a suggestion for what they can do when people ask about their their dating status. One of the most benign ways to get people to think about the error in the comment when they asked you, why are you single, is to ask someone, someone well, what do you mean by that? Hmm. And so the first thing that's going to happen, the person's probably going to stutter, they're probably going to stammer, and they're probably going to say, well, you know, like, well, no, I kind of don't know. What do you mean by that? So regardless of all of my other accomplishments, regardless of the very strong, solid, non-romantic, nurturing relationships, you're only worried about whether or not I'm in a romantic relationship with someone. If they keep talking long enough, they'll find the error in their ways. So it's going to be hard for some people because the pink, the sea of pink and red is already in the grocery store. I saw but it. one way, right? But yeah. one way to have to have other to push other people back in a very benign kind of way is just say, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And it forces the person who's asking the question to think about the question that they're actually asking and why they're asking that question. I also think like to the point that Peter was making, we want to put singlehood on the same level as marriage. Again, if we want to do that, we only ask single people why you're single, but we don't ask married people why you're married. Either we ask both or we ask nobody, but it shouldn't only be one group and not the other. We're almost out of time here, a couple of more minutes, but let me toss out a popular culture. And it seems, uh, Peter, I'll go back to you, that uh, TV and, and movies kind of understood this, maybe before people like psychologists and sociologists, <laughs> that, that there's a whole world of singledom out there. I'm thinking of Sex and the City, Girls, Seinfeld, on and on from there. Even Love, um, you know, the, the Love Jones. Love Jones. Love Jones, exactly. Mm -hmm. but, but Peter, can you speak to that? What Hollywood yeah, perhaps understood more than, than maybe the culture itself. 
Yeah, certainly. And now, of course, um, uh, many of these shows are comedies, right? And so it, well, it actually takes being unconventional to create comedy, right? So you think about Fathers Know Best. There, it wasn't that funny, a show. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's actually very important. And you're starting to see this, which, you know, it creates this kind of flywheel effect, which is, so I think I'm um, looking at the LGBTQ community as a case study is, is enlightening here. So if you think about like Will and Grace, for example, again, a comedy, mm -hmm. but also one that depicted uh, gay lesbian characters in a positive way. And so then suddenly someone who lived in a place didn't didn't know other people like them could look on the television screen and see people like them and feel comfortable with the fact that society had been treating them differently. And so we're starting to see uh, the rise of songs, for example, that celebrate self-care, self-love, uh, singlehood. I, my, my personal favorite is Going Solo by Jason Derulo. But um, I think that's going to be very important as the media picks up on this, that you're going to start to see more examples of people being depicted in a way that is single and in a positive way. And that is going to then let people decide whether they want to be single or to not be single. Well, we could go on. We have to leave it there. <laughs> My thanks to both of you for joining us today on The Connection. Peter McGraw, thanks so much. My pleasure. And he's a marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And again, he's got a new book. It's called Solo, Build a Remarkable Life of Your Own. Chris Marsh, thank you very much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you, Marty, for having me. Peter, it's always great to talk with you. And she is a professor, director of graduate studies in sociology at the University of Maryland, author of The Love Jones Cohort. Well, thank you for joining us today on The Connection. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. Check out our website, whyy.org slash theconnection. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and you can find us on Facebook. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. It's produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.